There's a passage from 1 Timothy chapter 6 I'd like to read and just talk about a little bit this morning. This is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. <clears throat> Paul writes, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. There's a phrase in this passage that really captures my attention. It's the phrase we find in verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. As I've thought more and more about this statement concerning godliness with contentment, I have realized that we can play around with the wording of the statement and come up with three important philosophies or approaches to life that characterize the life of many people in our world, both Christians and non-Christians alike. When we play around with these words, godliness with contentment, it strikes me that many Christians approach their life in a slightly different way than what we read about in 1 Timothy 6. It would seem that there are some Christians who have taken this statement and readjusted a little bit to fit their own approach to the Christian life, and they end up with a life of godliness without contentment. Godliness without contentment. Just think about this for a moment. One of the saddest things I think we can see around us among many Christian people is that many believers seem to be pursuing a life of godliness without contentment. Have you ever noticed this? Why does it seem like so many Christians don't ever seem to be able to smile? Why do some Christians never seem to be able to laugh or have a good time? Does this make sense to you? It does not make sense to me. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have the greatest and most exciting news that has ever been revealed on earth. Through Christ's death and resurrection, we can be forgiven. Even greater still, we can actually experience victory over death and sin. Through Christ, God can change and transform our lives completely, and he gives us a purpose for living. How incredible and how great is this? And yet many Christians walk around like someone just stole their lunch. It just doesn't make sense. Reminds me of something I read about the uh, great preacher Charles H. Spurgeon. Spurgeon was teaching a, a preaching class, and he was emphasizing to his students the importance of making the facial expression harmonize with the topic of the sermon. And so he said, when you speak of heaven, let your face light up. Let it be irradiated with a heavenly gleam. Let your eyes shine with reflected glory. But when you speak of hell, well, then your ordinary face will do. Well, it sounds kind of funny to hear this, and yet many Christians seem to reflect hell a whole lot more than they reflect heaven. I don't think this is right. Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy 6, 7, that we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. So why such long faces? The fact of the matter is that our circumstances here on earth are fleeting and momentary at best, but the life that Christ offers us is eternal. It seems to me that our faces, our attitudes, and our demeanor should reflect this great promise better than that. But there's also a second approach to life that can be illustrated by playing around with the words godliness with contentment. In fact, many people in our world approach life with this second philosophy and approach. Namely, many people go through life seeking after contentment without godliness. They seek after a contentment without godliness. So there are many people in our world who want to have contentment, happiness, and pleasure, but they don't want God to have any part of this. In fact, they often deny any role to God in life at all. They often say, or at least act like, I don't need God at all. I can handle everything on my own. Thank you very much. Only weak people need a God to go running for, to for help. I'm fine on my own. I don't need God to find contentment. 
I don't need God to find happiness. Does this approach sound familiar to you? I'm sure it does because we can see this approach to life in people all around us in the world. These are the people who seek contentment without any form of godliness. I think it's interesting to look at the Greek word that's translated contentment in this passage. It is the word autarkeia, and literally this word is a compound word made up of two different Greek words combined together. The first word is autos, which means self, and the second word is the word archaea, which means enough or sufficient. In other words, those who pursue contentment without godliness think that they are self-sufficient. They have enough, and they are enough in and of themselves. They don't need anything else all figured out. They're self-sufficient, and God or godliness is not needed at all. I always find it interesting and also very tragic that a person can go through life this way for a while and get away with it, but eventually, ultimately, something will go wrong, and the whole house of cards of their life will collapse around them. I've seen it happen. I'm sure most of you have as well, and it is so tragic and sad. They bet all their life on their own self-sufficiency, and when it falls apart, it falls completely apart. I'm reminded of one of the episodes from the old Alfred, Alfred Hitchcock Presents TV show. Um, I don't know if some of you are old enough to maybe, maybe remember some of those episodes. Um, but there was one story about a woman who was in prison. She was a younger woman, and she was just angry and resentful about her situation. And so she was determined not to spend another year in prison. She had to escape. And so over the years, she had become good friends with one of the prison caretakers. And his job, among different various different other things, was to bury those prisoners who died in a graveyard that was located just outside the prison walls. And so the procedure went like this. When the prisoner died, then the caretaker rang a bell, which was heard by everyone throughout the prison. Then the caretaker uh, got the body and put it in a casket. Next, he entered his office to fill out the death certificate before returning to the casket to nail the lid shut. Finally, he had put the casket on a wagon and drive it outside the graveyard and bury it there. Well, knowing this routine, this woman devised an escape plan, and she shared it with the caretaker. Her plan was the next time the bell rang, then she would pick the lock out of her prison cell. She would go into that office, and while he was filling out the death certificate, she would crawl into that casket. And um, she had done the figuring, and when he nailed the shut and buried it, there'd be enough air in this casket for her to survive until he came out after dark to dig up the casket and let her out. Well, the caretaker was rather reluctant to go along with the plan, but since they'd been friends for such a long time, he finally agreed to do it. And so the woman now just waited for her opportunity, the opportunity when someone would die and she could make her escape. It seemed like it waited forever, but finally, a couple weeks later, she finally heard that bell ring, that death bell ring. And so quickly she picked the lock of her, out of her cell and, and she, she went and, and got into the room. And as soon as he stepped out of there, then, then she opened the lid and she climbed in that coffin right on top of that dead body. Soon she heard the footsteps coming back into the room and the pounding of the hammer and nails, the lid of the coffin was nailed shut. It was very uncomfortable lying on top of this dead body. But with each nail, she knew she was one step closer to freedom. She could feel the coffin was finally lifted onto the wagon and taken outside of the graveyard. She could feel the coffin being lowered into the ground. And she didn't even make a sound as the coffin hit the bottom of the grave with a, th with a thud. Finally, she heard the dirt being thrown on top of the wooden coffin. 
and she knew that it was now only a matter of time until she would be free at last. After several minutes of absolute silence, she began to chuckle and laugh. I mean, her plan had worked. She was free. It was wonderful to know what plan had worked, that she would soon be free. Well, so she's waiting in that coffin, knowing that the, you know, her, her escape would, would come very soon. She began to grow very curious as to which prisoner had died to make her soon approaching escape possible. And so she, she decided to light a match to find out the identity of the dead prisoner beside her. And when she struck the match and brought the flame close to the face of the dead person, she discovered to her horror that she was lying next to the dead caretaker himself. No one was coming. The scene of the TV program fades as you hear a woman screaming in despair in the background, and that's it. It's over. There are so many people who try to pursue contentment without godliness, but sooner or later, their plans will fail miserably and tragically. This is not the approach to life that Paul recommends to anyone, and I'd strongly advise all of us to not to accept this kind of godless life. It will only end in tragedy. The third approach to life that Paul does recommend to his readers is the pursuit of godliness with contentment. This is the life that true followers of Christ have discovered. Christ offers us a peace and a joy that the world can never give and that the world can also never take away. This is a contentment and joy that is found in Christ alone who lives within one's heart. Jesus is the source of our joy, not our circumstances. And so regardless of what is happening around us, we can find true contentment and satisfaction in every circumstance and situation because Christ is there. This is the essence of the godliness with contentment that Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 6. Several years ago, I was teaching an online class on the book of Acts. And as I think all of you know, we always have our online students submit their autobiography to the news groups so that we can get to know each other a bit better, even though we're far apart from each other. Well, one of my students um, wrote in her, in her autobiography and told the class about her own conversion and growth in the Lord. And there was a woman who played a very big role in this, in the growth of, of this um, student of mine. And this older woman's name was Mrs. Thone. And listen to what my student wrote about Mrs. Thone. She wrote, I met Mrs. Thone in 1990 when Desert Storm had taken my husband to war. The children and I lived next door to her during the months that he was gone. And Mrs. Thone lived next to us. Mrs. Thone was a toothless, deaf, skinny lady with all kinds of sicknesses whose main diet seemed to consist of mainly Twix candy bars. Our houses were so close together that, that together my three children, if they lay on the ground end to end, almost spanned the distance between our houses. Well, Mrs. Thone, she loved me, she loved my kids, and she loved Jesus with all her heart, mind, soul, and voice. And voice, almost every day, she would call me on the telephone and ask, well, what are you doing for the Lord today? She called rather than come over because the amplifier on her phone was the only way she could hear my voice. My answer usually had something to do with housework, and she always loved that answer and praised me every time for my godly attention to my family. Yeah, I was just trying to get us from dawn to dusk in one piece. Hardly godly, I thought. In turn, I watched Mrs. Stone closely. Mrs. Stone seemed to be sick all the time. There was always some emergency going on. But despite this, Mrs. Stone was always doing something for the Lord. She visited shut-ins. She talked to strangers about Jesus. And she prayed. She really prayed. 
I knew it because I could hear her. Deaf as she was, the sound of her voice carried through the walls of our two houses into my kitchen, where I would listen in amazement at the intimacy of her talks with God. What would it be like to be so free that you could pray at the top of your lungs and not care who heard you? I wanted a faith like Mrs. Stone's. She encouraged me to read the Bible and obey it. My journey of faith bounded forward under Mrs. Stone's watchful care. Living next door to her, I could see movement in my life. I could see change, and it was good change. This student went on to say that Mrs. Stone, despite all of her sicknesses and the problems, was the happiest person she had ever met. Despite the fact that she was weak, deaf, and battled with many different sicknesses, she loved God with a joy and contentment that changed her life. This is what godliness with contentment is all about. This morning, I'd like to challenge you and each one of us to allow God to unleash his joy and contentment over your life. True contentment is found in God alone through the indwelling presence of the spirit of Christ. If you're not experiencing this kind of contentment and joy, the answer is not found in finding a new job or a new home or a new car or a new family. The answer is found in Christ himself. Allow him to fill your life with the spirit, with his spirit, with his joy, and with his promise. Indeed, godliness with contentment is great gain. Amen.